This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and today we have a little something different for you. Later in the episode, we're going to hear from special guest Ashwin Verghese on the international campaign for Tibet. He's a Beltway area bantha working in advocacy on behalf of Tibet, focused on human rights, their sovereignty, and communicating to U.S. lawmakers the interests of Tibet, um, you know, an autonomous region of Western China, known most likely to you as the pillar of the Buddhist religion led by the Dalai. Lama, who is based in India in exile to avoid entanglement, persecution, or worse from the Chinese government. More on that later. On the front end here, I wanted to touch base with you. Talk shop, rant at random, I guess. I had a guest co-host episode set for today to dig into the political values of the prequel trilogy and why they matter during the COVID-19 times, but that fell through last minute, so I have other things on my mind. We'll get back to the prequels and the idea of freedom versus security another week, because, gosh, that is uh, kind of the big theme. I think of this spring and it's going to be the big theme of the summer in the meantime there's a new article out in Reason Magazine that's currently online before the hard copy comes out from writer Kat Rosenfield titled Star Wars Identity Crisis. I thought it was interesting. Rosenfield argues that Star Wars has a tendency to mirror the mood of the times in which is created. All stuff which you know. The original trilogy had the vibe um, you know, because of Lucas's political vision, the, the Vietnam War, the Nixon years, etc, etc. The prequel trilogy, you know, it had the messages and sort of the themes that it had because of the, the Bush years and because of the war in Iraq and because of, again, the political priorities and worldview of, of George Lucas. And her case on the sequel trilogy is that it was a mess, precisely because we are a mess. I mean, when we... Uh, when were we ever not a mess, I, I guess, is, is the, the, real, the real secret answer to all of that. But the more narrow identity crisis premise, it makes sense to me. I, I don't think America knows what it is anymore as a country. Similarly, uh, Star Wars without Lucas, which I was optimistic about, hasn't figured out what it is either. We've talked about that in one of our past episodes on the legitimacy crisis of Star Wars in the age of Disney and how it mirrors in many ways the Protestant Reformation and the splits between the Christian faith um, back in the days when uh, the Protestant faith was rising out of Catholicism. And... You know, the, the piece, I think, is is overly negative and ignores the merits of The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, but it's worth reading and talking about. I'll have the author on in a few weeks. 
weeks to talk about it at length, so you won't want to miss that. A link to the article is in the show notes, and you know you know where to find all that. And you can also subscribe to our Beltway Bantha newsletter to get a weekly dose of this kind of political Star Wars content. Um, that is also included in the show notes, so you can hear from us once on a weekly basis in your email inbox and then get pieces like the ones that Kate Rosenfeld or Kat Rosenfeld wrote for Reason. Um, if you have subscribed, that went out today, and it included not only that article, but also something from StarWars.com from Dan Zier, host of Coffee with Kenobi, about principles in the Clone Wars animated series and a, a specific scene in the most recent episode where Ahsoka is arguing or, or having a bit of a debate with Obi-Wan Kenobi about the merits of helping out the Mandalorians with their battle against Darth Maul and his kind of roguish Mandalorians who are part of his faction. And Dan Zier over at StarWars.com wrote about why this scene was a great model in how to debate, how to disagree without being disagreeable. And obviously that has a political value to it as well. So this is the kind of stuff that you'll see mixed into that newsletter, as well as original Star Wars memes from yours truly and friends of the show. Um, I would like to have on the newsletter a dialogue between the left and the right on Star Wars subjects. I'm just not really sure how yet to do that or what it would look like. I'd kind of like some original material and collaborators to be part of the newsletter to write little blurbs um, on the same subject, both uh, from uh, different points of view. I think that would be really cool, and I think that would be really fun content, but I don't really know how to do it, so maybe shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. Uh, That's beltwaybanthas at gmail.com. So with that, I'm going to get out of the way. I'd like to introduce to you um, Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. He reached out when he read one of my articles about Bob Iger, Disney, and Star Wars, and some of the questions that I think are are correct to ask about Disney's political entanglements with the Chinese government and their ability to speak freely and and make the kind of stuff that they want to make without angering uh, the Chinese government and being blocked from the Chinese market. Um, You know, Ashwin reached out and, and was supportive of that as someone who advocates for Tibet, and that was kind of what led us to this conversation and he is a true blue star wars fan he really he really knows his stuff and he has a lot to say whether it's about naboo politics the the virtues of padme or you know how yoda and uh, the dalai lama actually have a lot in common how not only was yoda inspired by that figure but in many ways um that that comparison has only gotten more linked over time especially since revenge of the sith and we see uh, uh, Yoda sort of first experience what his exile was going to be. There's a lot of parallels there. And Ashwin also gave me, I think, a more worldly view of some of the politics and the the echoes of Star Wars politics. I, I tend to have just a very Western, American-centric view of the, the political parallels of the Star Wars universe, and I tend to just by nature of my own experiences, tie all of that to American politics. But he really showed me in many ways why that is wrong and why Star Wars is is inspired by many more things than what I myself understand. Uh, we talked a lot, particularly about Naboo and 
how there's actually some really neat parallels uh, between their struggle and the struggle of Tibet. So with that, let's get to Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Joining us now on Beltway Banthras is Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Ashwin, thank you so much for joining Beltway Banthras. Stephen, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I have to say, when you invited me on here, I was thinking about the fact that uh, last month at the International Campaign for Tibet, where I work, I wrote a blog post about the Dalai Lama because we were kind of coming up on a big anniversary for him. Uh, in, in the blog post, I mentioned, you know, I was growing up in the 90s and the Dalai Lama was already such a popular figure at that time. And if you had told me as a kid, back then, you know, someday you'll get to kind of work on his behalf. Uh, I would have been very happy about that. And by the same token, you know, I was kind of thinking if I could travel back in time and tell my younger self someday you'd get to do an interview about Star Wars, you know, I think I would also be pretty pleased about that. So this is kind of a fun dream for me. So thanks for the opportunity. Oh, that's great. I'm I'm delighted to hear that. That's really what Beltway Banthas has, has been about since its beginning was, you know, my just theory was that a lot of folks who work in public policy, journalism, whatever, they they love the issues they work on. They're they're passionate about them, but they want to talk about other aspects of who they are and what informs the work that they do. And and I think for so many people, Star Wars is that. It's foundational uh to some of our, our views on morality, politics, the way the world works. Uh, yeah. So so here we are. So here we are. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, it's kind of funny. I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but there are actually kind of a lot of similarities between Star Wars universe and what's happening with Tibet right now. So it yeah. kind of, uh, I think the morality of Star Wars kind of helped inform my decision to eventually join the Tibet movement. Well, I, I want to figure all of that out and hear sure. from you about some of those those parallels. Let's let's hear a little bit about you. And I also want to start you off by talking about Tibet. Uh, so you work for the International Campaign for Tibet. Could you could talk about what that is, what sure. the mission is, and for people who are not really following, um, you know, affairs of, of of Asia such as this, you know, what is the Tibetan struggle struggle that you work on? Yeah, absolutely. So the International Campaign for Tibet is the largest Tibet support group in the world. So we have offices in Amsterdam, Berlin, Brussels, and right here in Washington, D.C. So we are a membership-based organization. We have about 50,000 members here in the U.S. and 100,000 100, members if you include our offices in Europe. So uh, we're primarily focused on uh, advocacy. So we promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet. So we try to get the United States and other governments to adopt laws and policies that will help the Tibetan people. And the Tibetan people are right now in the middle of a nonviolent struggle against Chinese oppression. Uh, So, in fact, actually, just uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a virtual Tibet lobby day because of everything that's going on right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We were not able to get our members to come to Washington, D.C., as they normally do every year. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, we had people virtually kind of talking to their uh, congressional staff and and legislators uh, over the phone. So um, we, uh, as mentioned, we we advocate for the Tibetan people. We run a lot of programs to empower Tibetans here in the United States and around the world. And we also serve the vision of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who is, you know, I think one of our great moral and spiritual leaders in this time. So the situation in Tibet is pretty interesting. Uh, Before I came to work for ICT, the International Campaign for Tibet, uh, I was working at the Pew Charitable Trust, which obviously is another kind of you know, almost like blue chip uh, nonprofit agency. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I was, I was very fortunate. I've been very fortunate in my career. But when I was leaving there to come work for ICT, you know, I was talking to one of my colleagues who's a very intelligent person 
And uh, she's a lawyer, so she's well-educated and everything as well. And so I told her, you know, I'm, I'm joining this thing, the International Campaign for Tibet. She goes, oh, well, okay, so what's going on in Tibet? And I said, well, you know, I mean, there's an occupation going on, and the Dalai Lama has been forced to live in exile for almost 60 years. And she said, oh, the, the Dalai Lama doesn't live in Tibet. I said, no, no, he was forced into exile in, in 1959. And she goes, oh, I always thought he lived in Tibet. And I bring that up just to point out that, you know, even people who are really involved in public policy, who are well-versed in a lot of issues, just don't have a lot of information about Tibet. They might know the Dalai Lama, or they might have some images in their minds of yeah. monks meditating and that sort of thing. But a lot of the details are, are kind of hazy for people. And, and Buddhist uh, monks and like the Dalai Lama are, are currently hmm. located where? Where are they living right now? Yeah, great question. So the Dalai Lama uh, fled to India when he left Tibet in 1959, and he was only uh, 23 at the time, about to turn 24. So he was a very young man. And uh, when he arrived in India, he eventually got set up in a place called Dharamsala, which is all the way kind of in the northern tip of India. And uh, it's very close to where Tibet is actually located, because Tibet and India were historically neighbors. So he's been living there for, uh, for about the past 60 years. And uh, he also um, helped set up there a kind of democratic system of governance for the Tibetan people. So traditionally, the Dalai Lama was both the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism and the temporal leader of Tibet. So he kind of it was kind of a theocratic uh, system of government. Yeah. Uh, in Tibet, he was very adamant about transitioning to democracy, and he'd actually started to do that uh, in Tibet. He's actually started to do that in Tibet before he was forced into exile. Excuse me, in India now, he's been very adamant about uh, Tibetans adopting democracy. So there's an organization there called the Central Tibetan Administration, and that has an elected parliament, it has an elected president, and uh, they provide kind of democratic representation for the Tibetan diaspora. And there are Tibetans who live all around the world. There are thousands of Tibetan Americans here in the United States, um, but the Dalai Lama is based primarily out of, out of Dharamsala. Okay, understood. And and you yourself, what's your background? Where are you from? Um, sure. And how long have you been working on this issue in particular? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It does tie into me, uh, into my personal biography a little bit. So I actually was born in India. Uh, I was born kind of on the, all the way on the opposite end of the country from where the Dalai Lama lives. So I was born in a place called Chennai, which used to be known as Madras until a couple decades ago when they they changed the names. Madras was kind of the British name, and then they went back to the traditional name of Chennai. And uh, so I was born there in uh, 1986, in April. And then by August of that year, my family had relocated to the United States. So for all intents and purposes, you know, I grew up and uh, spent almost my entire life in the United States. So I grew up in a place called York, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours north of D.C. and about an hour north of Baltimore and a couple hours west of Philadelphia. So it's kind of nearby a lot of uh, a lot of big cities, but it's a pretty small town. And uh, it was a really uh, it was a really uh, nice childhood, especially now you know as I've kind of grown up and and uh, living uh, in the orbit of a large city here in DC. Uh, I kind of look back fondly on that time, and it was there in York where I first kind of developed my uh, my passion for Star Wars. What did you see first? What was your first Star Wars experience? Yeah, it's interesting. I was trying to think about that as I was preparing for this interview. I believe that my first experience with Star Wars was watching the original trilogy during Christmas, I want to say. Because if I remember correctly, growing up in the 90s, uh, before we got even to this, the special edition, let alone yeah. the uh, prequel films, during that time period, Star Wars used to, I think it was TNT, it might have been the USA Network, uh, one of those channels 
would play all three films back to back to back uh, during Christmas. I know you can always count on TNT. TNT (laughs) has always been playing uh, Star Wars films as long as I can remember. So I think that that's probably the one that you're thinking of. I think that's right. Yeah, I seem to have some recollection of that. And uh, I was kind of fortunate. I have uh, quite a few older male cousins. And uh, two of my cousins used to kind of come over to our home every year during Christmas. And uh, I remember one year, my older cousin, George, he uh, had, uh, you know, he started watching Star Wars on television. I didn't really understand it, you know, at a certain age when I was still quite young. I don't think I was necessarily that into it. But as the years went on, you know, we started watching it more often. I would see it at Christmas every year. And then my older brother, who's three years older, he and I just became, you know, deep fans uh, during that time period. So I watched all three of those films over and over and over. We had the cassette tapes back when those were still out of all the original films. And one of my really fond memories actually from that time period uh, was in 1997 when they re-released all of the original films in theaters. Uh, it was so exciting for us because by that point, you know, become like huge devotees of Star Wars. And uh, to know that it was coming back into the theater and, you know, at that age, I don't think I had a great sense of the context of, you know, it had been 20 years since the original and, to me, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, I had no way of, of comprehending how much, how long a period of time that was back then. Yeah. But um, when we went to uh, we went to see them in the theaters, and uh, one thing I remember that was really kind of uh, fun for me is that um, our mother actually picked us up both from school and took us to watch, I think it was Return of the Jedi, I think it was the last one. She, took, she picked us up out of school early so that we could go watch it in the theater, which was just shocking for me because, you know, my mom is kind of a, uh, Typical, you know, hard driving immigrant uh, mother, but she gave us that one exception so we could go, we could go see Return of the Jedi. And uh, so watching the uh, the special editions when I was a kid was really fun. And, uh, you know, my brother and I also like tried to make an HTML Wars website when we were kids and, you know, we'd read some of the books. Yeah, it was fun. It had like frames and, you know, links on the side and all of that stuff. So really got into it in that age. And it's kind of actually worked out really interestingly for me where, you know, I can kind of map the three different trilogies with different periods of time in my life and kind of how, you know, my own life intersects with that. Yeah. Um, I I think a lot of star Wars fans really relate with sort of how different chapters or sagas of star Wars go over their, their entire existence. Uh, For me, my, my, you know, my early, early years were of course, you know, special editions in the nineties and my adolescence was the prequels. And then there was the drought uh, in between the prequels and the sequel trilogy where I grew up up, went to college. I ended up starting a family in the course of the the ten years that Star Wars was uh, in the desert. And then, wow. you know, now I'm starting the sequel trilogy. Um, you know, with a family and, and raising mm-hmm. my own my own children as Star Wars fans. And you know, okay. it's just, it immediately maps on for me exactly where where the different chapters of my life start. But also, really you know, I I think I detected at the very end of the prequel trilogy in 2005 with Revenge of the Sith the first hints of where my my interest in my path would go i mean talking with my friends in the theater and and in the line outside the movie theater about democracy about totalitarianism about how quickly everything can fall apart and give way um you know to an autocrat during a time of crisis would kind of color the rest of, of my life as I would get more and more political and I get more and more interested in the way that these systems work. And you kind of get up to 2015 when the, the primary for the 2016 election is kicking into full swing. And the light just kind of came back on for me. And that's when I started 
Beltway Banthas and started this show to talk about the politics of Star Wars. And that was sort of the first moment where I'd become conscious that Star Wars was more than just entertainment and escapism for me when I was a young man. And for you, and kind of connecting who you were then to who you are now and what you work on now, was there sort of a moment where you were conscious of why Star Wars was so meaningful to you? Because I, I want to talk about the Dalai Lama and, and um, you know, Buddhism and, and Yoda and all that. And I'm, I'm sort of curious for you where you sort of picked up um, on those connections and how it built into who you are today. Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And, you know, it's nice to hear that uh, it had that kind of effect on you. And uh, it's been fun to go back and listen to some of your uh, older podcast episodes, kind of hear about the way you connect Star Wars with everything that's happening politically. And I think you're absolutely right that right now um, we are seeing a kind of dangerous rise of authoritarianism everywhere around the world and democratic backsliding in so many different parts of the world. Um, So to see the way that Star Wars can kind of prefigure or kind of uh, show us exactly how that might happen uh, has been really rewarding. I think that you have to give a lot of credit to Lucas himself originally because from what I've heard, that was kind of his original concept. I mean, he was really working in the post-Vietnam era originally, and he was really curious about how different societies can go from being democratic and actually uh, collapse into some type of autocracy, which seems shocking. And I think we've all been raised to believe that, you know, it's always the opposite. Just shocking, yes. (laughs) We've always been sort of fed the line that, like, especially growing up in the 90s, you know, you're always fed the line while the world's getting better, the world's getting more more sort of progressive uh, in the sense of, you know, expanding democratic rights and equality among different groups of people. And a lot of that, you know, obviously has played out, but now we're kind of seeing the flip side of it. So we have to be cautious about that. I think for me personally, where I started to kind of draw connections between what's going on in Star Wars universe and what's going on in the wider world, uh, probably happened around the time that I was in college in the first few years afterward. And, you know, at the time I kind of read some of those books about like, you know, the religion of Star Wars and the politics of Star Wars. And I don't, I don't recall the exact names, but I sort of looked into all of that stuff. Uh, And it was really interesting to see those parallels. And uh, it was very interesting also to learn about the way that Lucas wanted the original trilogy to reflect what happened in Vietnam. As I'm a young man, I'm kind of learning a little bit more about American history. And, you know, I'm kind of developing my own political awareness and thinking about different things that the United States has done and how I feel about it and, you know, what's right and what's wrong. I think that really helped influence me. Uh, moving on a little bit further, you know, uh, Star Wars just kind of continued to be uh, a source of inspiration for me throughout my young adulthood. And then uh, actually once I began working for the international campaign for Tibet, so to actually kind of draw it back to where I was when I was a kid, you know, I mentioned it was my older cousin, George, who was the first yeah. one who kind of introduced me to the whole, the whole thing. He, uh, you know, he has two, two sons of his own now. And I remember telling him uh, a couple of years ago, one of our family get togethers, you know, if I had to explain to them what's going on in Tibet, I think Star Wars would be kind of the best analogy for that. Because if you think about it, you know, Tibet is kind of the story of a kind of um, uh, group of people who are led by a really fascinating and dynamic religious leader who are facing a technologically superior empire that's, you know, sort of atheist in a sense and uh, is essentially bent on domination. It has no kind of patience for, for those ancient beliefs or for, uh, for any sort of moral values. So it's, uh, it kind of does, uh, it, it does sort of correlate really nicely. And I've even heard that there might have been some 
intentional connections that Lucas was making with the Phantom Menace, where there are parts of the story of Naboo that are actually quite similar to what was going on in Tibet, especially with Tibet being such a popular cause at the time. It's possible. I don't know that for sure. I know that's just a theory. That's interesting. Right. What what elements of the, the Naboo story, Naboo crisis, are you referring to? Is it the, the, Gungan, the Gungan split, or is it um, internal well, affairs on Naboo? Yeah, it's more sort of, well, it's more kind of the, so the, the separation between the kind of the Gungans and everybody else on, on the planet, um, you know, I don't know that that necessarily matched that well with Tibet. Um, you know, you could say that there are nomads in Tibet and then there were kind of people living in established cities. So there's a little bit of that, of that dynamic. Um, well, one of the kind of real similarity is the fact that, um, you have these people kind of coming in from the outside, trying to impose uh, a trade agreement on them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've seen some people compare that to this thing called the 17 point agreement, which the Chinese kind of forced the Tibetans to accept in the 1950s. And the 17 point agreement, you know, goes through a lot of details, but essentially it compelled Tibetans to recognize Chinese sovereignty over Tibet. And it promised them that they'd be able to maintain their religion and their government. That ended up being a lie, of course. Um, but you know, there's that kind of similarity where it's, you have this outside force coming into, into a society and trying to impose these agreements on them. Uh, I've also seen point, people point out the fact that, you know, for example, uh, the name Amidala actually even contains all the same letters as Dalai Lama. Uh, could be a coincidence, but it's at least an interesting fact uh, the Dalai Lama was also at quite a young age when the Chinese invaded Tibet, just like Queen Amidala was. Both of them were sort of forced into exile, although, you know, uh, Queen Amidala was eventually able to return. The Dalai Lama has been forced to stay in exile and has not been able to return to Tibet since Yeah, I, I would be I would be hesitant to say that it is a coincidence. They're usually in this business, and when you're right. talking about like uh, even just sort of like references by names, there usually aren't coincidences. Uh, even when it comes down to the Nemoidians and and Lot you know, <laughs> and and <laughs> Newt Gunray and all that stuff, right. there the wink wink nod nods are, are pretty intense. And uh, yeah. I even had read in CBS News uh, or from CBS that sound designer Ben Burt, who worked on Return of the Jedi, um, mm-hmm. had actually stated that the Ewoks, uh, they speak a, a handful of Tibetan phrases um, woven right. in throughout their own language. And I have, yeah. not been a- I have not been able to pull or identify what those moments are throughout Return of the Jedi, but apparently there are elements of Tibetan uh, Nepalese dialect within the Ewok language. And that is pretty yeah. cool and pretty, pretty likened to what you were just saying about, um, you know, sort of a spiritual um, connected to the, to the world around them, people, um, sort of taking on an atheistic and and metal empire. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think Star Wars in a lot of ways, you know, Lucas was just sort of talking about colonialism in general, but certainly you're seeing that situation playing out in Tibet. And I think in a lot of ways he probably was, you know, inspired, he might have been inspired by what was going on in Tibet. Uh, You know, you mentioned the language of the Ewoks. Yeah, I've heard that as well. Uh, I know some of my Tibetan colleagues have pointed out I pointed that out. I've got to talk to them at some point about exactly what the uh, what the Ewoks are saying because maybe they could translate that for me, which would be interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, I've heard that, and um, you know, there are also other kind of references to Buddhism in uh, Episode One. Uh, the Gungans' sort of territory, I think, was really inspired by Angkor Wat, 
which is, you know, not in Tibet, but it's a Buddhist ruin. And uh, certainly one of the ways in which, you know, kind of Amidala was dressed to evoke images of Buddhist deities. So there are all those comparisons. And like I said, you know, Tibet was such an important cause in the 90s. You would have to imagine that Lucas's sympathies would be... Yeah, I actually want to ask you about that. It wasn't my original plan to Mm -hmm. to speak much about Amidala, but since we're kind of down Mm -hmm. this path, and I'm currently on a chapter of my book that I'm writing... Yeah. Um, focusing on the Naboo crisis and what we're supposed to learn, the the lessons of Amidala's leadership during that time, is can you tell me a little bit about some of those connections and and sort of where maybe she gets that that Amidala queen garb and look from? Yeah, you know, I'm not 100% certain where the look is. I mean, I think that that was sort of inspired by different images of uh, Buddhist deities and Buddhist taras. And so there are different kind of goddesses that kind of have that similar appearance with, you know, maybe the dots on the face and the face kind of looks similar. Um, So I don't know that there's a direct inspiration, but I think they kind of just drew from these different images of, of Buddhist deities, which are very common in Tibetan artwork, for example. Um, so I would assume that a lot of that came from there. A lot of the, you know, I think there, um, you know, I think there's also the point, like I said, that, you know, Queen Abdallah was, was quite young and having to deal with this really complicated political situation. And uh, the Dalai Lama, you know, he became the leader of his country when he was four years old. And uh, by the time he was a teenager, so probably about the same age as Queen Amidala, he had to deal with this massive, you know, overpowering military force kind of breathing down his neck. And so he had to kind of negotiate all of that and navigate all of that when he was just a kid himself. And so you see some of that in Queen Amidala with, you know, her having to kind of figure these things out at a young age. Obviously, you know, the storyline starts to kind of diverge from there where, uh, you know, she... Uh, is able to kind of work with, um, I guess it's the Galactic Senate, if I'm using the terms correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know that kind of sets in course, a, sets in motion a whole other sequence, a whole other what sequence you, of actions. So, what do you think it, it says about the Dalai Lama's uh, leadership and sort of the the challenges that he faced? As a, as a child, as someone who was leading other people in a sort of a life or death situation in really tense times, what do you think it says about his belief system that he was able to sort of navigate that situation? How did you think, and from your, your perception, he get through that situation using his beliefs, uh, his Buddhism, whatever he had yeah. uh, available to him to face face the Chinese? So it's really fascinating because uh, so there are many different conflict zones around the world, right? Uh, Tibet, I think, kind of stands out as being one of the only, if not the only, and certainly the one that I'm really aware of, where the people have been basically completely nonviolent throughout this entire thing. So it's been more than 60 years now, and for there has really not been any mass violent uprising in Tibet since 1959, which is pretty astonishing if you think about it. Um, so there's the uh, watch that group Freedom House. They routinely list Tibet as the second yes. least free place on Earth. So that's worse than even North Korea. Um, only Syria does worse on that list than Tibet. So Tibet wow. is facing, you know, extraordinary repression. I mean, this is a very, very... I, I feel badly because you mentioning the, the Freedom House rankings um, mm-hmm. and the level of oppression that goes on in Tibet. I, I honestly just would not have known because you, you said earlier on the show the conflict in Tibet with China, and I don't ever really hear about a conflict. I don't think about it as a conflict because, as you mentioned, um, the Tibetan people are are incredibly nonviolent, and they've maintained that for 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it, where does that come from for them? I mean, that kind of peace, and, and how do you resolve the conflict if that is their, their mode of dealing with oppression? 
Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, you touch on a really important point there, which is just a lot of people don't hear about this in part because they're not, you know, major uh, incidents of violence that are breaking out in, that have broken out in Tibet for, for the past 60 years plus now. So that's part of the reason why, you know, unfortunately, I think it's been a little bit overlooked in uh, recent years, especially when it comes to discussions about kind of what's going on in the world. Um, but another big factor in that, frankly, is the fact that the Chinese government really severely restricts access to Tibet. So journalists who, you know, as a communications officer for ICT, you know, I work with a lot of journalists and I correspond with journalists who yeah. are based in China. And many of them, you know, have tried to get into Tibet and simply cannot get access. And in fact, the uh, Foreign Correspondence Club of China does a survey of its members every year. Many of them are at the point now where they often just don't even try to get into Tibet because they know they'll be denied. They know they won't uh, get the permission from the government to go there. And they know that even if they were able to get in, you know, they'd kind of be closely followed and monitored and really wouldn't be able to do any actual reporting while they're there. So the sad thing to say is that the Chinese government has been very effective in getting the world's attention off of Tibet um, by restricting access. And the Tibetan people themselves, you know, like I said, they've, they've um, stuck to their course of nonviolence. And so that has uh, also kind of impacted their ability to get the world's attention. And too many people kind of just there's, move away from yeah. the situation. There's, there's just my, I, I'm trying to think of a specific in the, in the Star Wars Nexus and universe that mm. aligns with this. But really, it's just, it's just so much because you have uh, a people in the Tibetans who, and correct me if I, I have this, you know, wrong or, or just you know incorrect here, is um, they look to the Dalai Lama as a as a deity, correct? Uh, not exactly as a deity per se. Um, he's considered a reincarnation of something called a bodhisattva of compassion. Uh, so I'm not 100% familiar on all the different intricacies mm-hmm. of the Tibetan religion myself. I'm a great admirer. Um, but he is, you know, he's essentially, you know, he's their leader, even though he hasn't been in the country for 60 years. The people there still look to him for leadership and guidance. And whenever they're able to actually get any information about what the Dalai Lama is doing into Tibet, it makes people there, you know, extremely excited. Yeah. And they, so they, the believe, they believe in higher powers and, and sort of the, the, the powers of the universe that um, yeah. supersede um, human yeah. governance and will. And it just it just makes me think about how in any sort of totalitarian regime and, and definitely in Star Wars and, and under mm-hmm. the Empire, it is the mandate of that government to snuff uh, the belief in higher powers out of its people. It's, it's the mandate of the Empire to go and destroy Jedi artifacts destroy Jedi temples, eliminate any remembrance of those of those powers and of that higher power. It's it's controversial or it's you know uh, countercultural for someone um, like the characters you see in Rogue One who live on on that imperial occupied planet uh, right. played by Donnie Yen to yes, to believe okay. believe in the Force <laughs> and right. to and to to give his deference to the force over stormtroopers. Um, you have to beat yeah. that out of people or you cannot rule them. That's absolutely right. And I think any kind of religion uh, or any belief in anything outside of the government is always going to be a threat to any totalitarian regime. So in China, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism or it's Islam, as we're seeing in uh, Xinjiang, where obviously there have been these mass internment camps, uh, or even if it's just, you know, the Falun Gong thing, I mean, um, so many different belief systems are considered a threat to the communist orthodoxy. And so those things have to be completely snuffed out, like you said, 
in Star Wars, it's the same thing. Belief in those, uh, belief in the Force, or belief in any power that's greater or contrary to the Empire itself, is going to be considered a threat to the survival of the Empire. And I think in Star Wars, you really—I'm sorry—in China, you really do see a regime that, in so many ways, kind of echoes in the real world what's happening with the Empire in the Star Wars universe. Uh, whether that's you know Luke is kind of just drawing inspiration from totalitarian regimes and kind of recreating that in the Star Wars universe, or if it's or if it's just you know the, the fact that all these different regimes kind of operate the same way. I mean, you see that uh, any threat to their power is always going to lead them to some sort of paranoid, over-the-top reaction, and uh, their only sort of purpose uh, is not to, you know, to benefit the lives of people, it's not to, to make things better for anybody else, it's ultimately just about maintaining their power, and they'll find any type of, uh, any, they'll go to any extreme just to maintain their power, and they're able to justify that by saying that while the order and discipline or, you know, the stability that they bring to society, for example, um, you know, allows them to use force in the way that they do. And, um, you know, you hear uh, Darth Vader and others in, in Star Wars movies talk about the need to bring kind of stability to the, to the galaxy, while the, you know, the Chinese government constantly talks about the need for social stability and about how, any type of peaceful protest or any type of religious activity or whatever is portrayed as a threat to stability. So they use that same sort of pretext or that same sort of excuse to maintain the repression that you see the empire using. So there are all these kind of interesting parallels. Whenever you, as a, as a grown fan, watch Yoda um, join up with Bail Organa and say into exile, I must go, and then begin his time living on Dagobah for the duration of his life, does your mind just sort of naturally drift to the story of the Dalai Lama? It does. And, you know, I think we have to sort of be honest about this. I mean, uh, I, so I've heard stories that, you know, Lucas uh, was actually in Dharamsala before the original Star Wars movies came yeah. out. And that I've he heard might, that. Yeah. I've heard that. I haven't been able to kind of confirm that anywhere, so I don't know for yeah. sure. It seems uh, like one of those, like, anecdotes that just, like, right. maybe was mentioned by somebody and it has a life of its own. But that's what's been said. I've just never seen it verified. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not 100%, uh, you know, sure that that actually did happen. I mean, it does, like you said, it does seem like one of those stories that kind of just gets told. I feel like there'd be more information if that actually happened but all that being said you know it you can't not draw the comparisons between yoda and the dalai lama i mean both of them are uh extremely uh wise spiritual leaders older spiritual leaders and yet they both have this kind of like extremely likable and charming personalities and these kind of like you know cute sense of, of humor and uh you know Neither of them comes across as like uh, in any way uh, like you wouldn't like just like when Luke, you know, first saw Yoda, he wouldn't have guessed that this person was a great Jedi master. By the same token, I think people, if they see the Dalai Lama, you know, he just seems like this kind of friendly older man. You wouldn't necessarily realize that this person is the leader of this ancient civilization because they both just have this very kind of disarming personality and this kind of, um, you know, this wisdom that is is really inspiring 
And, uh, you know, you also have to sort of say, like, you know, even if you listen to Yoda talk at times, it kind of does sound like the way His Holiness speaks. The Dalai Lama obviously doesn't have the same sort of sentence structure. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't speak in quite that same way. But even if you're just sort of listening to his voice or the voice that Frank Oz used for that character, part of it, you know, to me anyway, it really does sound like Yoda. And I know other people have said that as well. Like I said, I can't say for sure that it was based on any Tibetan Buddhist monk, but, you know, just from observing it, you, you definitely notice the similarity. You and I were connected and, and met initially because I wrote um, a piece for the Washington Examiner magazine about Disney, Bob Iger, and I touched on, uh, in the course of that article in Bob Iger's tenure, how Disney has sought to expand its company and its business by growing its reach um, in Asia and particularly with the Chinese markets. And part of that has come at the cost of free expression of American artists. It has come at the cost of representation of Tibet as even a place that exists um, throughout the course of several different Disney properties and Marvel movies. Um, Doctor Strange being one of the, the key examples where Tibetan monks were completely eliminated from the story altogether to just be monks. Um, and the, the reason for that was to have the movie play in Chinese markets. What do you think people people need to know about the extent to which China um, moves to try to control the, the thoughts, expressions, art, and politics of, of countries far outside of its borders, like our own. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating topic, and uh, you know, I'm grateful to you, and I'm grateful to others who have started to bring a little bit more attention to it, because I think it's something that a lot of Americans don't really know that much about or don't really realize is happening. At the same time, if you were to ask any person walking down the street, which obviously you're not going to find too many people walking down the street right now, but at some later date, if you were to ask any ordinary U.S. citizen, how do you feel about the Chinese government essentially censoring the movies and the art that come out of the United States? I think most people would be deeply offended by that. I mean, it goes against all of our values, uh, not just for free expression and, um, you know, for for uh, our individual freedoms, but also our empathy and our solidarity with other groups of people around the world who are suffering. I mean, the United States is clearly on the side of the Tibetan people. The United States is clearly supposed to be on the side of oppressed groups all over the world, right? That's who we are as Americans. So I think a lot of people would be very offended by that. And I think the more we can kind of raise awareness of what's going on, I think that is imperative. I think we do need you, to have a lot of people Do you think it, it, it complicates matters that Donald J. Trump is the messenger for this um, and the idea that China as a, as a country has sort of grown beyond its bounds that I think most American presidents up to this point might have thought they would reach? And I don't want to put you in a tricky position to talk about this and, and get political about Washington and all, but like even in the libertarian world, you know, I'm, I'm a free trader. I think that you know, trade with China and having Chinese goods on every shelf in the country is generally good for Americans because Americans need goods that they can afford. And things are so expensive when you rely on them just being domestic. But I really worry about the impact that uh, the current president has on the the, the messaging, <laughs> the messaging yeah. of China as as a threat to American sovereignty and thought. Is that something that factors in into your daily life? Well, it's interesting. And, you know, as you kind of touched on, uh, so ICT, International 
national campaign for Tibet, we are completely nonpartisan. Uh, and we're very fortunate in that sense that actually we have strong support from both Republicans and Democrats for the issues that we work on. You know, our biggest supporters in Congress include Nancy Pelosi on the Democratic side and, and Marco Rubio on the Republican side. So we've been very fortunate. Um, as far as kind of what's going on with the Trump administration, it's been interesting. Um, all of the uh, all of, of President Trump's predecessors going back to the first um, George Bush met with met with the Dalai Lama. Um, part of the issue why, you know, I think President Trump has not done so just has to do with him, with the Dalai Lama kind of traveling less these days. And, you know, he's getting older and hasn't really been to the United States in a few years. But at the same time, um, so we don't necessarily hear President Trump uh, addressing the issue outright. What Donald Trump has done is... Um, Sign into law one of the most important pieces of Tibet-related legislation that we've seen in many years, and uh, it's a little bit complicated to explain. But it's a bill called the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act, and that was signed into law in late 2018. And it's a bill that essentially deals with the issue that I mentioned earlier, where China kind of blocks access to Tibet for foreign journalists, but also blocks access by foreign diplomats, U.S. diplomats, and U.S. tourists. So, um, you know, when we kind of talk about, you know, people's ability, about freedoms and people's ability to, to travel, to engage in commerce, do all those sorts of things, China's not allowing that with Tibet. So President Trump signed that into law, and I think his administration has been um, aggressive on China in a way, you know, where sort of beyond my conceptual understanding even to sort of say, you know, whether these, whether some of the actions the Trump administration has taken are going to be good or bad in the long run when it comes to the economy and some of these other issues. But it has opened up a space now, I think, where there's being, where a little more attention is sort of getting paid to Tibet. And, you know, as the Trump administration is a little bit more aggressive with China, you know, I think there's an opportunity to kind of bring people's attention back to Tibet and to pass some more legislation and to uh, take some more actions that would, um, help the Tibetan people. And I think that is a strategic um, benefit for the United States. I think that, you know, um, we do have to be aware of the fact that, you know, without necessarily getting into the economic issues, um, the Chinese government is really sort of threatening our way of life in that they're trying to reorient the world order toward their system of government, which is pretty much antithetical to our system of government and our values. I'm doing a I'm doing an interview later this afternoon um, with a with a conservative columnist by the name of Ben Dominich at the Federalist, and one thing that he speaks about a, a good deal is that the the benefit of the sequel trilogy and the idea of a first order rising to sort of reenshrine the ideas and vision of the empire is that it reminds us that. Freedom is not the default setting of the human experience. Uh, democracy is not just an assumed good by all people around the world. And you and I both grew up in the 90s, like we talked about earlier, and this sort of assumption that democracy yeah. was rising and that totalitarianism was still in retreat. And now we are uh, in a place where that is the opposite. We've talked about democratic backsliding and the rise of authoritarian regimes across the world. And China is just one of many regimes that is using their 
power and every uh, every lever that they have to try and reverse the trends of the past century and take us to a different place. Because again, our vision is not just the default setting for the world we live in. Um, Ashwin, I wanna I wanna round out on on one thing. I always like to close with a Star Wars forecast and uh, give you the opportunity to talk about what you're excited about in the world of Star Wars. What's uh, what's going on in the world of fandom? Things that you see coming around the corner that you're really excited about as a Star Wars fan, maybe TV show, um, upcoming movies, maybe this new line of books they got working on. Is there anything that's uh, got your interest perked for the, uh, the years ahead as a fan? Well, so I have to say that actually one of the things that makes me excited is the fact that um, sort of, uh, you know, this might sound like a little bit of perverse thinking, but I'm kind of happy to see that the sequel trilogy uh, received the mixed reception that it did. Uh, let me explain myself. The reason is um, sure. because so many people um, were dissatisfied with the new films. And, you know, I you know kind of have my same mixed feelings about them, as I'm assuming you, know, you probably do as well, and many others do. Um, and there's certainly a good bit of disappointment in seeing this new trilogy, right? Um, I think, though, what hopefully that might cause is, you know, an opportunity to sort of reimagine things where... There was a real feeling for me, and I'm assuming for many people, when it came to the sequels that you know, this really was just completely just a cash-in, right, or just a cash grab. And with the original Star Wars movies that Lucas made, yeah, of course he made a ton of money off of them, and of course there was a ton of merchandising and everything, but he at least started with wanting to tell a story, and he had no idea when he first told it that it would become the success that it did. Yeah. With the sequels, it seems like Disney, which we touched on a little uh, was simply just trying to grab up another intellectual property and was trying to milk it for all it was worth. Um, because they're kind of have gotten some pushback on that strategy now, because they're sort of going back to the drawing table, I'm excited to see what happens next. You know, I'm hopeful that in some way uh, we can get back to putting the storytelling first and get back to um, actually coming up with some new and interesting angles or directions for, for, for the whole universe to take. Um, rather than just do either the kind of fan service thing that they've been doing or just this kind of unplanned, um, you know, this unplanned uh, franchise that they put out there, properties that they put out there that, you know, we were never really sure where it was going. So I'm excited. I mean, we're certainly at a moment right now where, you know, Star Wars has taken a little bit of a hit over the last few years. But I think that also means that now there'll be a chance to kind of do things again and kind of get it right the next time. And that is a wrap. My conversation with Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. You can follow Ashwin on Twitter at Ashwin underscore Tibet. That's Ash W-I-N underscore Tibet. Great stuff there. And you should get in touch as well with the International Campaign to Save Tibet. That's at Save Tibet Org. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Beltway Banthas. We'll be back the week after next with more. We've got some uh, several interviews lined up that I'm really excited to share with you. And please do consider subscribing to the Beltway Bantha newsletter. You can find a link to that in the show notes, and you will be getting just a weekly digest of reading good Star Wars political content if you're listening to this show. Um, And I know there are a thousand of you out there who do listen to this show. This is the kind of thing that I think you'd enjoy waking up with your coffee one day a week to read. I've been your host, Stephen Kent. You can find me as well on Twitter at Stephen underscore score Kent 89 and Beltway Banthas at you got Beltway Banthas. Can't wait to talk to you all again. And until that day comes, may the force be with you always.